Welcome to the Back to Blue podcast. I'm Naka Kondo, lead editor of the Back to Blue initiative. At Back to Blue, we have been closely following the issue of marine chemical pollution over the years. In January, we launched a call for submissions on how to spearhead a coordinated global response to closing the marine pollution data gap. And in this month's feature article, we take a look at U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's important March proposal to set limits to forever chemicals in drinking water. For this podcast, we talk to Sarah Dole, National Director for Safer States, an NGO fighting pollution, on the significance of the EPA proposal to limit PFAS in U.S. drinking water, and what needs to happen next. Welcome to our podcast, Sarah. So let's start with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's important March proposal to set limits to forever chemicals in drinking water. This seems like a very important step forward. What were your impressions, and where do you think things will head from here? I think it's a first step. The administration has indicated that addressing PFAS is a priority for the administration. So they created this roadmap in 2021 that was sort of like, all right, let's figure out how we're going to actually get to addressing the PFAS crisis that is sort of emergent. And so the proposal to restrict or create maximum contaminant levels or drinking water standards for those six PFAS was an important step. I think contextually to understand that under the Federal Safe Drinking Water Act, we hadn't actually been adding chemicals to that list of chemicals to be addressed. So that the fact that they actually started a process to create restrictions around any chemical was an important step to address six PFAS is a really important step. However, it's in the context of a class of chemicals that's 12,000 or more. So, you know, it's just the very tip of the iceberg of the PFAS contamination crisis across the country. Again, I think contextually, it's a good step and it will begin to create protections for communities across the country. It is still a proposal at this point. They haven't actually finalized it. It's expected to be finalized by the end of the year. But once that is actually done, it will start to create those mandates. And I think one of the other things that's really important about it is that if you look across the country, there are some places that look like they have more contamination, PFAS contamination in drinking water than others. But part of that is because they've actually been testing and looking for it. Some places haven't even started testing or looking for it. And now with the federal government mandate, they will actually have to look for it. And so what you're likely to see in terms of some of those maps of PFAS drinking water contamination is more places in the map getting filled in because they're actually looking for it and then having to think about how do they address it. Interesting. How do you see the EPA's role in driving things forward? There are some states that are already doing this? Should we think about the EPA as kind of just driving up the baseline of where everyone is? Absolutely. I mean, at this point, I think that there are 10 states that already have formal drinking water standards, like what the EPA is trying to do for multiple individual PFAS chemicals as well. And so, yes, there's 10 states that have formal standards. There are another 13 states that have less formal standards. But again, trying to figure out how do we get a handle on this problem and begin to create protections and solutions along the line. So yes, states are absolutely in the lead on this. And I think one of the important parts of that is that 
drinking water standards are basically end of pipe solutions. It's like, okay, it's coming out of various and sundry places into our drinking water. And so we're trying to manage it at the back end. It's like trying to pick up the trash after it's been thrown, as opposed to how do we make it so people aren't throwing the trash in. So the other place the states have really, because they've been at the forefront of trying to manage this and figure out what do we do with this, there's a couple of pieces I think that are important. They're just really trying to turn off the tap. How do we stop creating the problem? And so they're really at the forefront of regulating PFAS in a variety of products like firefighting foam, food packaging, textiles, as an entire class, the whole class, not just the six or seven or eight that are for drinking water standards, but the whole class so that we stop putting it into the system and then having to deal with it. And the other piece in this, because the costs are significant, we now have 17 state attorneys general, which are the lawyers of individual U.S. states litigating, basically saying we're going to need resources for the cleanup and we need to get those resources from those who've caused the problem. Interesting. Now, the burning question is, there are many thousands of chemicals we ideally should be regulating. Is this realistic? Also, taking into consideration the legacy of chemicals that are already out there in the system? Well, again, I think you can regulate the entire class upstream. The state of Maine has said, we're going to eliminate all unnecessary uses of PFAS in any product by 2030. And that is at the entire class level, at the multi-thousand individual, but as a class. It's much harder to regulate PFAS, again, more at the end of pipe. Part of the limitation is the regulatory system is really set up based off of what you can test for in soil or water or air. And if your testing methodologies can't figure it out, then you can't regulate it, even if you think it might be there. So there's some limitations in the process. The European Union has actually been trying to consider how do we regulate the entire class of PFAS in drinking water. And because it also has a PFAS strategy priority, it is trying to figure out, could you do a different kind of testing methodology that would support that kind of regulation? But it's more right now, there's just figuring out how you do it in the structure that's been created about how we regulate drinking water, it makes it very challenging to do a bigger class-based approach at the moment. But all that to say is that there are places trying to figure out ways to solve that challenge. I wonder what have been the primary pushbacks in the U.S., for instance, the response from the industry Well, there's sort of two questions there. One is sort of between the states and the feds. I think the the biggest answer to that is we need all levels of government to try and address this problem. And where the federal government may be better positioned to do some of the end of pipe solution creation, like setting drinking water standards, putting it into Superfund. There's like a variety of different federal authorities that EPA is trying to figure out how do we leverage each of those to address some PFAS chemicals. Really, and the states have been doing some of that again on that end of pipe regulatory side. But again, where you're seeing more of the leadership in the states is on the turn off the tap and on the accountability side. And that will drive 
more space for federal solutions like that, where you saw multiple states regulating PFAS and firefighting foam as a class, putting pressure on the federal government to do it. And then under the National Defense Authorization Act, they said, okay, we want to do this. We want to eliminate PFAS and firefighting foam. And we need to change some of the rules that require it. And so they've gone now on a path to do that. And now there is movement for the federal government to move towards purchasing or encouraging the purchase of PFAS-free firefighting foam. But part of that is because you had firefighters on the ground saying, we want this and drinking water, you know, communities impacted by firefighting foam near defense facilities saying we want clean water. And so that momentum in the state's both created regulation at the state level, but that created more space for there are PFAS-free firefighting foams on the market now that we know are safer. And so again, it creates the space that are effective. This is an important piece of this. Then when the feds act, it creates this larger blanket. One thing I think that is really important in the U.S. context is the nationalization of the marketplace. So if one state, say Minnesota or Ohio or California, adopts a regulation that says you cannot have PFAS in, say, most textiles, because Target, Walmart, Dollar Store all sell, the effect is that it impacts supply chains because Walmart is going to shift If they're saying you can't sell it in California, they're going to not just ship for California. They're going to look at their supply chains and go, okay, how do we make this system wide? Also partially because the way the states work, you'll probably see one thing here and then it'll happen in a few more places next and then next and then next. And there's just so much momentum around addressing PFAS at multiple levels, that nationalization of the marketplace means that you're having some nationalization of solutions without it even actually going to Congress or the federal government. The new chemicals are a problem, but so are the chemicals that are no longer in use, but still out there. How will we tackle this issue? And are there any hopes around, let's say, emerging technologies on this front? Well, there's a reason they're called forever chemicals, to your point. On the detection side, I think the technology, as I was sort of indicating, is incomplete at best. You know, I think that there's a lot of energy trying to figure out better strategies to do it. And so, again, I think the regulation that, again, at the pollution end of it will follow some of that detection, those technologies as they are certified. We have a process in the United States where it has to get certified. And then once it is through that loop, then yes, but I think it's incomplete. It's just, we need more. On the management side, once it's out there, I think our solutions are not great at best at the moment. There are a lot of like things that pop up in my feed that are like, oh, look, this new academic institution has figured out this thing. Or this one, you know, microbes, you know, will do X or Y or break it down in some way. A lot of the solutions right now is like, well, let's incinerate it. But the problem is it's the strongest bond in chemistry. So you have to have incredibly high heat in order to break it down in an incinerator, which most incinerators don't reach. And so I think given all the attention and the broad widespread recognition of the scope of the problem, 
there are plenty of innovators in the, right now trying to figure out what is the solution going to be and what is the approach that can actually address these without creating a different problem. Because again, with the filters, you fill the filter up, what are you going to do with the filter? You're going to landfill it. Well, then it's a landfill and then you're going to have leaching. How are you actually really going to solve the problem? Which is again, why you're seeing a lot of state governments go, we have got to stop creating this problem (laughs) upstream. It's just the resources, enormous resources are, are going to be necessary to address the pollution now that it's been created. PFAS are literally omnipresent in goods that we use, our water systems. In your opinion, are there any countries or regions that you think have done a particularly good job at tackling these issues? Well, I would say maybe I clearly have a somewhat of a bias. I would say actually that the states, U.S., individual U.S. states, not the United States, but individual U.S. states are actually really leading this in what Maine did with, say, like, let us eliminate all unnecessary uses unless they're needed for public health. That is now the similar framework for the European Union and what their approach is for PFAS. Let us move away from this chemistry towards better solutions. When California said, we're going to regulate PFAS in most textiles, and then New York followed, and now you have companies in Southeast Asia who create those textiles looking for solutions or alternatives to PFAS in production. So it has these global impacts. But I would say that the other nations that are more at the forefront on a regulatory side really is the European Union. And the mirroring, again, with the state approach is it's the whole class. It's not just one or two or six, which is what the drinking water and regulatory standards are, but it is actually looking at the whole class and looking for solutions on that broader scale, which I think is really important. So what we've seen historically is when on bisphenol A, when it was in baby bottles and sippy cups and everyone's like, let's get bisphenol A out because it's potentially harmful. Industry shifted to a different bisphenol. They went to bisphenol S. So part of the whole class approach helps avoid regrettable substitution so that you're not switching from one chemistry that you may know is harmful to another one that you don't have as much data yet, but it's in the same class. It has the same characteristics. And then the science comes in and says, well, actually it's bad. So it actually creates more industry certainty that any retooling or things that you're changing within your institution or manufacturing or product production will have greater longevity because it won't necessarily be up for regulation. And I think one of the other pieces that is huge driver in addition to drinking water is litigation. As I mentioned, you know, we have 17 AGs, but that is separate from a tremendous amount of private litigation and or smaller jurisdictions also litigating, which is I'm sure part of what convinced 3M to leave the chemistry. Sarah, thank you so much. That has been really interesting and helped us deepen our understanding of this topic. And thank you for listening. Back to Blue, an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation, are hoping to spearhead a coordinated global response to marine pollution and design a roadmap by 2025 
to close the marine pollution data gap. To learn more, download our discussions paper, "The Zero Pollution Ocean: A Call to Close the Evidence Gap," and also do visit our website at backtobueinitiative.com.